the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com.
faithfulness, and righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we come today as Americans, as a part of our culture, and we see the devour coming against this land. We ask, Lord, today that you would show us how to walk in this American culture without being devoured by the lions of darkness. To make progress day by day toward that celestial city, Jesus. Come and minister to our hearts now. Teach us your word. I pray in your holy name. Amen. In the book of Ephesians, Chapter 1, you have an outline of all of the blessings of God. Each thing that he has done for us is enumerated in that first chapter. It tells us that nothing has been withheld from us. That every gift of God to save our souls has been given to us. Then he begins to pray. When I listen to a person pray, I know who they are. When we pray, we reveal our heart. Verse 18. No, I'm sorry, verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better, or so that you may be more intimate with him. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, this is not a very interesting prayer to we who are Americans. Because we're so fat and so well-fed, and we've consumed so much of our culture that we often come and we're not hungry. So he's praying that God would feed us and that we could understand what's being offered on the table. But often we, have you ever done this, gone to a smorgasbord? Eaten your fill. And then you suddenly see new trays of food coming out. Do you rush to see what the new food is? No. You're full. In fact, the aroma of the new food coming out turns you away. And you say, come on, guys, let's get out of here. Because you're full. Americans are full. We live in a culture of excess. 
So it's very hard for us to understand. Let me put it this way. If a young person grows up and mom and dad give them everything, everything is given to them. They're allowed to sleep in as late as they want to sleep in. They're allowed to go do what they want to do. Mom is the taxi driver or dad is the taxi driver. And they take them to ballerina. They take them to soccer. They take them to lacrosse. They take them here and they take them there. The child grows up not understanding that mom and dad have to work hard to produce the money to buy those luxuries. That doesn't matter to the kids. All they care about is increasingly they want more. Now I want the iPod. Now I want the iPhone. Now I want this. Now I want that. And if you say no to them, they're being persecuted. Have you ever watched a parent go through a line at the grocery store and these racks of candy and the kid reaches out and grabs some candy or some gum and clenches it in their fist? And when mama says, put that back, honey, the baby goes explosive. And because you don't want to be embarrassed in the grocery store, you put the money down on the counter and the child goes out having won. That reminds me how many of us come to the Lord. We've gotten pretty much everything we wanted. And now we have a wish list. And if God doesn't give it to us, we're going to moan and groan and cry. And But we'll get it. We'll embarrass him into giving it to us. You know, I thought my dad was the cruelest dad in the world when he made me go out and hoe corn every day in the summer. I didn't want to hoe corn. I wanted to go swimming. I wanted to go ride my bike. I wanted to go hunting. I wanted to do something, but I did not want to hoe corn. But in the winter, when I would come in starving, and I would smell the corn chowder, oh, now I wanted some corn chowder. And my dad would say to me, Raymond, you remember last summer, you were angry at me because I made you hoe the corn. But now you get to eat the corn you were hoeing. So next summer, don't give me any lip. That made a lot of sense to him. It didn't make any sense at all to me. I deserved that corn chowder. Because I was his son. I had a right to have what I wanted to have. Well, no, I didn't. I didn't have a right to anything. I didn't have a right to sit at his table. It was a gift that I could sit at my father's table and eat the provision that his labor had created. So as we come to the word of God today, Just so you understand, I know you're overfed. So I'm going to ask you to please try to get past that with me and go into some deep water. Do you understand 
that Sodom and Gomorrah were burned and destroyed, not because of their homosexual sin. Ezekiel tells us they were destroyed first and foremost because they were gluttons. And secondly, because in their gluttony, they didn't care about other people. Those are the primary reasons for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We need to make progress today. We need to move forward in our understanding of what God has called us to be about, what his plan is. He begins the book of Ephesians by saying, this is what's been given to you. Now he begins to pray for us. And then the last part of chapter 1, he tells us in verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head of everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The heart of God is about creating a church. It's about creating a family that we can be a part of. Now, because of the luxury of our day, if I were to say to you, how many of you belong to Wegmans? You wouldn't raise your hands. I don't belong to Wegmans. I go to Wegmans. If I were to ask you, how many of you belong to LA Fitness? Well, I don't belong to LA Fitness. I go to LA Fitness. And I'm blessed to pay $5 a year. I can't afford to go anywhere else. It's a place I go. How many of you belong to the National Prayer Chapel? Or is it a place you go? God's not interested in creating a place where you go. He's interested in creating a place you belong to, a people who belong together, who no longer think of themselves independent or separate from that body. Chapter 2, he begins to deal with the spiritual reality of our hearts. Verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live in when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Are you alive in Christ? Or are you still dead in your trespasses and your sins? And where are you in that journey out of darkness into the light? Can you identify where you are on that journey? Have you made a covenant relationship with God saying, I totally give myself into your authority and into your power. Do with me as you wish. I belong to you, Jesus. I no longer belong to myself or to any other place. I belong to you, Jesus. You are my Lord and my Savior. 
Now exercise your royal authority over my life. Have you taken that posture yet? Some of you, you gently nod your heads. And others of you just look down. I know what that means, and so do you. It's well that we identify, for reality's sake, where we are in that journey. How do you know if you're making progress if you don't know where you're at? You have to have a clear understanding. This is the progress I've made this far. This is the covenant I've made with God to come this far. Now, what's the next step of progress you need to take in your walk with Jesus? I wish I could come to each one of you individually with a mic and say to you, what is the next step you need to take with Jesus? Would you be able to identify that step? And are you prepared to take it? And some of you are shaking your head no. Because you're a fat, well-fed American. And you think you've got it made in your, in your place and in your way. You understand when I say a fat American, I'm talking about all of the luxuries our culture provides for us. You understand when, when America's culture was agrarian, all of us would have been spending most of our time working in the fields. But today, I would guess that not one person in this house works in the field anymore. Oh, you may work as a, a mechanic, you may work as, a, as an auditor, you may work as a, a computer IT person, you may work with your head, you may. But we don't work in the fields anymore. We have a, a freedom to turn our thermostat up and warm the house up. Instead of going out and splitting the wood or paying the coal man to bring coal and send it down the chute into the coal bin and then have to shovel it and carry the ashes out. Some of you remember doing that. I do. We live in a time when it's almost impossible for us to apprehend what God is trying to do because everything has become so changed and so luxurious. Just look at the horses that are stabled out front of this church. Shiny white ones, shiny black ones. Some say BMW. Some say Volvo. We have classy horses out there. Some of them barely run. Some of us ride broken down nags. To understand, we've got to move past this. And we've got to get a hold of what is God doing. What are God's plans for your life? What's that next step he wants you to take? What's holding you back? 
What are you afraid of? Why are you stuck? To be stuck is a choice. It's a choice of a person who is not brave enough to take the next step. A person who is comfortable in their stuckness. And then God has to bring such pain into our lives to move us along a little bit. Boy, I've been saying, Lord, could I move along without the pain? Could we just bypass all the trauma and the drama? Just talk to me. But he doesn't seem to work that way. No, I don't seem to work that way. I think it's me. I don't think it's him. And by some of your smiles, I can tell you think it's you too. Chapter 2 begins to speak about what God has done in us and for us. And he talks about, in verse 21, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God wants a church where he can live in that people, in his spirit, by his spirit. And then chapter 3, Paul begins to unfold the administration of God's grace, how it's going to work. In verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So God plans by coming and living in his church to give a living example before the devil, before the fallen angels, that their accusation against him, that he's unfair and that no one can walk righteous before him, that whole charge of God's unfairness is now being utterly defeated by the church who walks clean before God in the fullness of the Spirit. That's what God is doing. That's why Jesus has not come back yet. Because he wants his body to live in such unity and in such righteousness before God that God can say, look, have you considered my servant National Prayer Chapel? And the devil may say, yeah, look at their luxury. Why don't you, why don't you give them some trouble? L- let me trouble them. Then we'll see what they do. Oh, he's done that to us. And then in verse 14, he finally begins to kneel before God and cry out for what is truly on the heart of Paul and on the heart of God. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. This is Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. In other words, he's the husband, and we've changed our names. Instead of being servants of the devil, we're servants of the Most High God. We're called by his name. I pray out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. You understand everything I'm saying to you today is about your inner being. You make all the choices in your inner being. And if those choices are based on what will make you comfortable, you will make the wrong choices. 
If you make your choices based on how to keep the peace with unbelievers, you will make the wrong choices. And so Paul, knowing this, is saying, look, I'm praying that your inner being will be strengthened so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He wants us to understand the love He has for us. And He wants us to be filled with His fullness. I want to show you a story. I've been doing a lot of struggling with King David and King Saul. And I just have to tell you a very interesting dream I had last night. In my dream, I was in a throne room. And there was a king sitting on the throne. And he beckoned me to come forward. Now, he was not dressed like I'm dressed. I was dressed in this suit. He was dressed in royal robes. I approached the throne. I did not kneel down. I did not bow. I did not, I did not acknowledge him as my king. But I immediately recognized him. I knew I was in King David's throne room. I did not say a word. He had a very piercing but kind look on his face. And he said to me, The Lord commands you to walk in righteousness and faithfulness. And I woke up. I couldn't go back to sleep. I knew that was the word of the Lord. Walk in righteousness and faithfulness. As I tried to think through and understand that dream and what the significance of it was, I began to see again the reality that it's not enough to be righteous. And it's not enough to be faithful. We must walk in both. Righteousness means innocence. And faithfulness means we keep doing what God called us to do. A young man called me yesterday. He said, I will not be in church on Sunday. I said, why? He said, I'm going to take a break from Jesus. I said, why? He said, because I have been walking with Jesus I've not been going to wicked places. 
I've done everything I could to be righteous before God. And he has not answered my prayers. He has not delivered me. He's not done what I've asked him to do. And you've prayed for me, and he hasn't done what you've asked him. So I'm taking a break from Jesus. I said, oh, you're going to go back and get in bed with the devil. Well, no. I'm just mad. You see, you cannot unlink faithfulness from righteousness. They are bound together. I said to him, I do not serve Jesus because of what he's going to do for me. I serve Jesus because of what he's done for me. He died on the cross for my sins. He made a way, opened a way for me to enter into the heavenly realm. So it doesn't matter to me what he gives or does not give in the future. He's given me everything in the past. He's demonstrated to me his great love for me. But what I hear you saying is that you want him to serve you now, and you want to be the king. You don't want Jesus to be the king of your life. You want to be the king of your life, and you want him to serve you. You want him to be your servant. He is no man's servant. He will either be your king or you will be cast out. And you will be ruled over by the devil. You cannot delink righteousness and faithfulness. As soon as you stop being faithful, you have become unrighteous. David has been running for now probably eight or nine years. He was anointed king over Israel. Then he was put under a mad king, an insane king, a king filled with a demon spirit. That king tried repeatedly to kill him. He was driven out into the wilderness and King Saul would pursue him with 3,000 chosen soldiers. He had to eat the roots of the ground. He had to scramble to try to hunt some kind of game. He tried to set up his camp, and in the midst of all of this, he had to run. He was fleeing for his life. Saul wanted to kill him. But he was the anointed king of Israel. And he was faithful to the Lord. He did not give up. He ran and he ran and he ran. And finally, other men began to come and run with him. They were the complainers. They were the malcontents. Oh, he was punished. He was beaten. He was driven through the wilderness. He was mutilated. And the men, as they came to him, I'm sure they could barely recognize David because his whole personality had been changed. He was no longer the laughing boy who killed that giant. He was now a a beaten man, running, terrified. 
And finally, he gave up. He gave up. Because after nine years of running, he finally decided that this would probably be his destiny for the rest of his life. I understand. Have you ever gone through such tribulation that you finally say, I might as well make peace. This is my life. I'm always going to be running. I'm always going to be overworked. I'm always going to be short of money. I'm always going to be in this painful place. I'm always going to, always, go, always. And finally say, I give up. I'm done. I'm done. That's what David did. He was so beat up, so exhausted, so tired of running, that he said, look, Saul's going to kill me. I'm not the king. What was that foolish anointing that God gave me? That Samuel came pouring oil over my head. He must have missed God. I'm done. Have you ever been done? Will you just say, I've had it. That's enough. I'm out of here. I've put up and I've put up and I've put up and I can't do it anymore. That was King David. We find it in 1 Samuel 27. David thought to himself. Remember? Saul thought to himself. It is so dangerous when we begin to think ourselves separate from the Lord God of heaven. He began to think. One day, I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. The Philistines were the sworn enemy of Israel. They were a wealthy people. They were called the people of the sea. They settled along the seashore. They did a great trade in shipping. Most of their money came from shipping. They worked out of Tyre. And finally, David says, I might as well go join the enemy. At least Saul can't kill me there. Have you ever gone back and joined your enemy? You understand what your enemy is? It's the old sin that you used to walk in. And you say, I might as well go back and live with my sin. I've tried as hard as I can try. I'm exhausted. I'm beat up. I might as well go have a little comfort. If God doesn't care about me, why am I going to care about God? I might as well just go back and relax. Go back to my sin. Go back to my discouragement. Go back to my despair. Go back to my anger. Go back to my fun and games. God's not going to deliver me. 
I must have missed him. His promises, I can't trust. He hasn't done for me what he said he'd do. So David goes to one of the rulers of the Philistine armies. And he makes peace with them. And they give him a city, Ziklag. And now he takes his men and they settle into Ziklag. And then the Philistine army gathers for a war against Israel. And David joins the Philistine army and marches to fight against Israel. But the the commanders of the army say, we don't want David and his 600 men here. In the midst of this war, they're going to turn against us, and it is said of him he killed 10,000. David's saying, no, I'll show you what I can do. I'm going to go fight him. David had utterly given up all hope that he could be delivered by the promises of God. Achish sends David back to Ziklag. And when David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites in chapter 30, 1 Samuel 30, the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it. Now, what could God do to get David's attention again? He had turned against the Lord and he had turned against his people. He had put his safety first and foremost. He had put his comfort first and foremost. And so what could God do now to get his attention? Burn it all to the ground. Take his wives captive. And David comes back. In verse 4, so David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. In other words, David has endured so much, and he finally says, look, I'm going to reach out and try to create for myself a little bit of comfort. He was utterly disappointed. He was heartbroken. He'd lost everything that he'd wanted all of his life. He had been utterly cast off. He was treated in an evil manner by the children of Israel. He'd given up hope. And so what does God do to get his attention? Burns down his little comfy cave. Has God ever burned your comfort cave down? I want you to know that that's what he'll do. See, we let go of God a lot easier than God lets go of us. Because God loves us with such compassion and such care. God does not love us in order 
to get something from us. He loves us to give us something. We usually love to get something. God loves to give something. And so here are these 600 men, exhausted, angry, bitter, and their wives and children are taken captive. And for all they know, they've been killed, raped, and they are just, now they are at a total end. Thought David was an end when he went to the Philistines? No, now he is at the end. He's lost everything he treasured. He is utterly stripped now, even of his wife and his children. He has lost the last thing that a man can afford to lose. The wife and children he loves. And he has no hope. All they can do is sit and weep. And then his ears perk up. He begins to hear some of the troublemakers in the camp saying, let's stone David to death. It's his fault. So now even the men he has run with are turning against him and saying, let's kill him. Let's stone him to death. David has come to the absolute end of his strength, of his courage. He is utterly beat up. He is rejected by his people. And now he sees that he has been rejected by even his 600 chosen warriors. He's lost his wife and his children. He has nothing left to live for. And then this phrase, but David found strength in the Lord his God. So when David is finally brought to the complete crushing, the grace of God rose up in his heart and he began to find comfort in the Lord God of heaven. Now, how does that happen? It's such a mystery. You would think that he would have raised his fist and cursed God and died. You think that Job would have raised his fist against God and cursed him and died. But there is a truth the Holy Spirit brings to the deepest part of our soul. When everything is stripped away, the Holy Spirit moves in power in our hearts and tells us, trust the God of heaven. Now, we can be angry with God. We can run from God. But the call of the spirit in the inner being, remember, Paul was praying that they would be strengthened in their inner being. 
when God comes to us, he strengthens us in our inner being so that we can turn to him and say, I will find comfort in my God. You notice David does not find comfort in the few rags that are left in his life. He does not find comfort in his strength, for he has none left. He found no comfort in himself. Some of you today are finding comfort in your own heart. Or you're finding comfort in what you possess. Or you find comfort in a relationship. The truth is, we can lose that relationship. We can even lose our own strength. We have to know today that it's only as the Holy Spirit comes and strengthens us in our inner being that we can begin to find comfort in the Lord God of heaven. No matter what the circumstances, when everyone around us is crying and angry and they're even ready to kill you, there is only one source for comfort, and that is in Jesus Christ. That is the only source of comfort. David calls the priest. He inquires of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? And the answer comes back, pursue them. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and 600 men with him begin the chase. They find an Egyptian in the field. They give him water and drink. They give him food. They discover he was the slave of an Amalekite. He had been with the raiding party. He asks, will you lead us to that raiding party? Yes. He makes a deal with David not to turn him over to his Amalekite master. And he led David down in the countryside where they found this army. Feasting and drunk. Verse 17, David fought them from dusk, that is about sundown, until the evening of the next day for 24 hours. They fought. Nothing was missing. All their goods were there. All their wives were there. All the children were there. No one had been harmed by the grace of God. What's the next step you need to take with Jesus? What's that step of progress? It may be you need to take comfort in Jesus. If you're broken and angry, you need to take comfort in Jesus. 
if you're full of the things of this world, so you have no hunger for God, your next step is to go on a diet. Stop eating the the food of Sodom and Gomorrah. What is the next step you need to take? Paul's prayer is for you. To strengthen you in your inner being. In the innermost part of your heart. So that you will decide to walk in innocence before God. And to be faithful to God. And not cast him off. Now I don't live in a Pollyanna world. I know how difficult times can be. But in the midst of that difficulty, instead of allowing our hearts to join the Philistines, remain faithful where God has called you and let him be your protector and your guardian. But I do have to ask you, Have you already gone and taken comfort with the Philistines? Are you going to walk holy before God? Righteous and faithful. You know what I mean by faithful. You don't stop. You don't turn aside. You don't give up. You trust in the Lord. You find your comfort in the Lord. Lord Jesus, I don't know how to break the iron grip of American culture upon your people. Lord, that grip has been so tight on all of our lives that it's almost squeezed from us the last vestige of righteousness or faithfulness. Lord, I'm asking in your mighty name, would you show each one of us today the next step we need to take and give us the inner strength in our inner being to take that step? Would you call us forward? And in your great mercy, would you stop the downward drift of our hearts? And call us to higher ground. Lord, would you bring about any circumstances necessary in our lives. That we would find our comfort in you alone. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come join us at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. With great joy Now
from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy with J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.